All right, everybody. Well, this just feels good. How's everybody doing today? I know we're in a pandemic time, but it's Ian Smith here, and I'm back hosting another episode of Earning Their Stripes for the first time in way too long. I'm alongside my good friend, Louis Davila, today, and we're going to start off today's episode by giving him a massive congratulations for graduating the University of Florida a few weeks ago. So I just wanted to say that, and congratulations, Louis. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you. Um, I'm happy to be back talking about baseball again. It's been a while, so I'm really excited. Well, with that being said, we're bringing back a special guest for you this week, and it couldn't have came, couldn't have came at a better time. We are we have for you today Baseball America's draft guru, Carlos Galazzo, to, to the show today to talk 2020 drafts and, of course, the Marlins prospects. How are you doing today, my friend? I'm doing great, guys. Thanks for having me. And, uh, Louis, congrats on the graduation. That's awesome. Thank you. <laughs> Oh man, it's been it's been a it's been a crazy couple of weeks, and uh, I know the draft news just came out this this past week, and I just want to know how disappointed you are to hear that we're just going to be five rounds this year. Yeah, well, considering that we rank, uh, we already have the the top five hundred prospects ranked, and we're only going to see about one hundred and sixty actually drafted. Uh, <laughs> definitely a bit disappointed. I think uh, I'm kind of in line with all the scouting departments and the scouts, and that. Longer is always better from my perspective, and particularly this year, it would have been it would have been terrible any year. But the twenty twenty class is so good and so deep that uh, it's just disappointing for the players, all the guys who have worked hard, obviously, to get to this point. Not that um, this year is is only affecting baseball. There are obviously a lot bigger ramifications across the country and across the world uh, with everything that's going on. But it is disappointing. I mean, for uh, people who care about baseball and care about the draft, there are going to be a lot of players who just aren't able to enter pro ball uh, because of this, and, and that's disappointing. You you definitely want to get uh, the most talented players you can every year to join your sport, um, and limiting it to five rounds and a 20K bonus for the undrafted guys is, is definitely not pushing that forward. So it's disappointing, but at the same time, it's kind of the reality that we have to, to live with now, so we'll try and make the best of it. Uh, what do you think the rationale was for the players' union to accept this five-round draft? And do you think there was any like pressure from the players uh, due to uh, them having to accept the uh, reduction of minor league teams? Yeah, I mean, there was a 10-round proposal that was sent to the players that, that they rejected because of a few things in the details, um, limiting the number of undrafted signees you could have so there was there were different discussions for different uh different routes we could have taken but at the same time i think at the end of the day uh mlb is going to do what they they see as best and i don't think anyone is surprised that the owners are winning this battle i mean it's it's a financial decision clearly um even though only 100k is going to be paid for bonuses this year with with deferments in 2021 and 2022 this is definitely a a money move uh, with revenues kind of disappearing at the major league level. Owners want to cut costs as much as they can. And while the draft is uh, still an extraordinarily valuable avenue to acquire talent, um, I guess if you look at it from their perspective, it makes sense to cut money. But at the same time, uh, there's no better way to acquire talent uh, for as valuable as you can get in the draft. So yeah, it's disappointing. I think uh, I, I've talked on our own podcast about how I wish the, uh, the MLB players association would, be a little bit stronger in uh, kind of representing these players who they officially don't represent. Maybe that's an oxymoron take from me. Um, but I just think with no one kind of representing these guys uh, at the table, they continuously kind of draw the short stick. And, and we see that happen this year. Again, uh, I don't know what the, the best case scenario is. Obviously something was going to have to happen, but 
Uh, it's a pretty, pretty unfortunate situation. Well, speaking a little bit about this year's talent to get on the positive side of things, Asa Lacey has been the name that's been most frequent on mock drafts for Miami at pick number three. Uh, what are your overall feelings at him at the next level? Yeah, Asa Lacey, I think, I think this year's a pretty good, pretty good year to pick number three. I mean, we've heard that the top two bats, Spencer Torkelson and Austin Martin, are the favorites to go one and two in some order. Um, and I think Asa Lacey, while maybe isn't quite at that tier. We have him solidly in the top three in this year's class. I think depending on the team you talk to, you could see him at the same level. I think generally teams just want to side with with the bat if you view the talents as similar. But HLAC is the most complete pitcher in this draft class. He's a guy who has plus stuff really across the board. Uh, came out early this spring and dominated uh, pretty much every appearance he came out at. He's got a fastball into the upper 90s. Uh, he's got a wipeout slider that has improved. He's a guy who... There have been some questions about his, his overall command, but I think he's uh, more than good enough in the strike-throwing department to, to kind of dominate hitters. And he's a guy who projects as a, a front-of-the-rotation arm. So if I'm the Marlins and the two bats are taken in front of me, I'd be thrilled to get Asa Lacey from a, a fan perspective. I just think there are really no holes you can point to in his game. Uh, I love the demeanor that he kind of attacks hitters on the mound with. He's a bulldog. He comes right after you. Uh, and he's going to be a guy that racks up a lot of strikeouts and, and really is tough on hitters at every level. Uh, I mean, you just mentioned three college uh, players. Obviously, there's less to go off of for scouts right now. Uh, what do you think uh, they're emphasizing at the moment, especially with like high school guys and obviously mm -hmm. like some of the college guys that didn't really get a chance to uh prove themselves over an entire season and like what what are they looking for and mm -hmm. how has the coronavirus pandemic affected that yeah definitely i mean this is going to be uh, a very unique draft obviously i think the demographic that's hit the hardest is the high school players you mentioned um even if some of these college guys didn't really get to show a lot this spring um they do have kind of a, a larger body of work that teams can look on from their freshman and sophomore seasons uh, if we're talking about junior eligible players, but the high school guys, I think it's going to be a lot more difficult because while for a lot of these top guys, uh, like these first round uh, picks that we have, at least the first round talents we have uh, kind of in that top 30 range, you did see them over the summer, a lot of high profile showcase events. So teams feel pretty good about the the talent uh, and, and kind of what they did last year. But at the same time, a lot of guys in the Northern half of the country never got to start their spring seasons at all. Um, so this it's just a, a much bigger, risk bar, I guess you could associate these players with um, when you kind of compound that with the signability concerns you typically have with high school players being that they have the leverage to go to college and, and start their college career. I think we're going to see a lot of guys, particularly at the second and third tiers of the high school demographic of this class that get pushed out of the draft or they just fall down the board enough to where they don't want to sign in a five-year draft with all the limits that you're seeing on bonuses and deferments and all of that. Um, so I think teams are basically just having to, to use the evaluations they have on all of these players, whether they're high school or college. I mean, it'll be tough to wait early season performances for some of these college players, particularly some of the, the players, the hitters and the pitchers who maybe didn't face the greatest competition. Uh, I've been having conversations with a lot of scouts and scouting directors lately about how challenging is that really? So I think at the end of the day, you kind of have to trust your area scouts, the guys who really know those players, know the background, know the history, know kind of who they were before, uh, and for those players who maybe made a jump uh, or showed a lot better this spring, is there a piece of evidence? Is there something tangible that they changed that you can say, hey, he did this now, so he 
we expect him to be better because of this change or just the area scout come away from a look and say, you know, I think he's maybe just performing against some competition. It's a short season sample. It's a short sample size, excuse me. Um, so kind of weighing all those things. And then obviously looking into the analytics, every team obviously uses analytics in some capacity, um, figuring out how to kind of weight the spring results, how to weight last summer's performance and just figuring out how to balance all the information that you have is going to determine which teams are successful and which aren't. And in the draft every year, it's always tough to, to kind of nail these guys. No one really knows, but just kind of trusting everyone you have, trusting your process and communicating, I think is going to be key for all these teams. And that's probably true every year, but especially this. Uh, so can we expect the robust uh, undrafted free agent market? Or are we just going to see a really uh, like, big uh, juco push or a lot of returning juniors and seniors i think you're going to see all of that i mean just the number of players that you're not going to get signed this year compared to previous years those players have to go somewhere i do think for a lot of players the juco route would be a great a great route to take advantage of i mean you have a lot of flexibility at a junior college you might have to deal with less roster crunch uh and playing time issues that you would at some of these colleges who are going to have a lot of returning players who they weren't originally expecting to kind of come back to school. At the same time, there are probably a lot of seniors who understand that if they come back next year for their uh, additional year of eligibility, they're going to be very old for a lot of these teams who, who definitely value getting players into their organization as young as possible. So for them, uh, if they know baseball is in their future, uh, typically seniors aren't getting a lot of money in the draft anyway. So maybe they say, hey, 20K, uh, it's not a lot of money. But at the same time, I really want to pursue this baseball thing. Uh, next year, I'm going to be dealing with an even bigger senior class to compete with, uh, and I'll be 23, and, and in some cases, 24 years old at the time, so it might be best to, to go ahead and get this jump started. So I'm kind of fascinated to see how many players teams sign after the draft is actually over, uh, how many of those players decide to go, and, and how teams kind of uh, negotiate to try and get some of those priority senior signs or even those priority junior guys who maybe would be willing to start their pro career as well. Um, but for the college game, it's going to be very tough for, for coaches to kind of figure out this roster crunch uh, and for players to figure out what position, what school, what, what location for them is going to be best for their development moving forward. Uh, it's definitely tricky, and I think it's, it's probably one of the bigger negatives to come out of this shortened draft scenario is just the challenges that you'll see at the college game. But at the same time, from a fan perspective, um, if you like the college game, you're going to see more talent than maybe you ever have at the college level across all the various collegiate levels. So, um, I mean, when I, when I think of this uh, draft process and obviously what's going to happen afterwards, I'm kind of expecting like an NCAA football type recruitment situation here. Uh, what, what teams are you expecting to have the advantage in this scenario? Some of the MLB clubs? Yeah, yeah, uh, the MLB clubs with, um, with the undrafted players. I think any, any of the teams that have already kind of gone uh, a step further than everyone else in terms of uh, paying minor league players more, I think, really helps. The Blue Jays were a team that, that did that earlier than everyone. They Im increased salaries. Uh, there are a couple other teams that had talked about doing that before. Um, maybe this will spur major league teams to just do that in general. It's, I feel like you're really opening up a lot of dicey territory here with some, with some things that can go wrong in terms of uh, underhanded dealings, maybe. I know that was one of the first things that scouts brought up to me when this 20K bonus limit uh, was introduced. They were worried, hey, like we're all working with the same amount of money. What's to stop uh, teams from promising certain things under the table? Obviously, MLB is going to come down really hard if, if they find out any team has done that. Uh, but I know there's been speculation that maybe players will sign with their 
hometown team, their favorite team growing up. Uh, there are a lot of different factors. I think it's going to depend on the individual. It's going to depend on uh, what they think of the team's organization uh, and player development. Do they think they can become uh, get the most of their potential with certain clubs? Do they have a lot of confidence in the coaching and, and, and the pay and just all the different things that come uh, with, the, with the pro game and kind of the benefits that you can get with their different teams. It's really going to be a, a chance for clubs who have done a really good job uh, developing players. I think they're going to have the advantage there now that kind of money is, uh, is equal across, across all teams. Those teams that really have an established track record of, of getting the most out of their players and treating them well, I think we'll probably have the advantage. Um, at the end of the day, I think we'll probably just have to wait and see. With a slightly weakened catching class, I would say in this twenty twenty class, Dylan Dig or Dingler has pushed up boards pretty high in the last month or so, and that's surprising in a shortened season. He had been on Miami's boards for the second round for a while, but now it looks like he's looking to be a first rounder. Is he became a first round lock for you guys? Uh, I don't know if he's a first round lock, but it wouldn't surprise me at all if he did go in the back of that first round range. I think I would also push back a little bit on the on the catching crop this year. Uh, while there's no Adley Rushman at the top or Joey Bart kind of in the top 10, we do think it's a pretty strong catching class. There's really good depth at the high school level. There are a couple, uh, two or three, depending on what you think of the guys sticking back there long-term catchers at the collegiate level who I wouldn't be surprised in the first round. So I think the depth at the position is pretty good. Uh, again, you don't have the Adley Rushman type who's like a no doubt number one future star. Uh, but at the same time, I think it's solid. But Dingler, I mean, he is a guy who has kind of got an impressive all-around profile. I mean, Patrick Bailey is the catch-and-throw guy. Austin Wells maybe has the best bat of these three guys. But Dingler, he throws behind the plate pretty well. He's a pretty good receiver, and uh, he's shown potential with the bat uh, in the past as well. So if you think he's a guy who's going to hit uh, with a little bit of pop and also be an above-average defensive catcher, that's an everyday type, and teams definitely value that. Uh, particularly with his college track record. So, yeah, if he went in the first, wouldn't shock us at all. Uh, I, I don't know if I would go ahead and say he's a lock just because this year it's harder than previous years to kind of figure out that second tier and who's definitely in the first round and definitely not. And I think we'll also have a lot of uh, signability things will come into play in terms of where players will actually land. But, yeah, I, I think at this point I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, that was really what led me to saying the catching crop would be a little bit weakened because I see the names like Romo and Parada and, and Bulger that might not sign or look even less likely to sign nowadays with this new draft outcome. So that was mainly the reason why I said this, this class was so was so shortened. But mm -hmm. I see what you're meaning there. Yeah, I mean, the talent's there. If the teams don't want to pay it, that's one thing. But yeah, if they actually true. want to buy into these, some of these players who have uh, a lot of really good impressive talent, I mean, it's, it's there for them. Well, to speak about another impressive prep after talking to prep guys, Zach Veen has been known as one of the top preps among industry boards for the last few months. But now there's rumblings that he may be lower in some organizations. Uh, why do you think there's becoming such a variance with him this late in the stage? Uh, I don't I don't know that there's been any large shift. Uh, there, there could be people that just have different rankings uh, that have come out publicly. But, I mean, we've been pretty consistent that most teams value him as like a top 10 prospect uh, in our report, we, we talked about some scouts who are a little more skeptical of the bat. So maybe that's what you're talking about. But I haven't I haven't talked with anyone who doesn't see him as a first round prospect. Uh, I would be a little surprised if there was some split in the industry that kind of just started in the last few weeks. That's something that I certainly haven't heard of. And I expect him to go very high in the draft. I mean, his upside is just 
extremely significant. He's a guy who added a ton of weight. He has one of the better amateur swings that I've ever seen uh, in terms of just the mechanics and the looseness of the swing. Um, and he's a guy who I think has a chance to be a plus hitter with, with plus or better power in the future. And that's, that's really a package that you have to look at for a little bit and, and think hard if you're going to pass it over. Well, I'm going to lean to a, a one player from the Marlins organization that you guys have brought up in the past few months, and that's Peyton Burdick. You guys had mentioned him as a, a breakout candidate for 2020. Obviously, we might not see a minor league season in 2020, but what do you see as type of a, a type of future for him in Miami? Yeah, Burdick is a guy who had a really impressive debut, if I remember correctly. I think in 2019, he hit a little bit over 300, 400, and then somewhere in the middle of the 500s for his slugging. He's a guy who has an interesting power-speed combo. Uh, at Wright State, he had double-digit home runs and 20-plus stolen bases. So I think he he's a pretty good value there. I know Matt Eddy at our office really likes him just from kind of a statistical slant. He's been really impressed with what he's been able to do. And it brings up Peyton Burdick with two outs. The pitch. He cranks a ball to center field. Altman goes back. Still going back on the track. It's out of here. To dead away center field. It's a two-run blast for Peyton Burdick. 13 to 7. Um, and we might look back in a few years and think, man, how did how did the Marlins really get him where they did in the draft? I think they took him in the third round. In, yeah. Is that correct? Yeah. And, yeah. and really the tools and the performance so far are really exciting. Obviously, they've got a number of really interesting outfielders from that 2019 class. J.J. Blade, I think he's going to be a, a fantastic player as well. But just the tool set and kind of the performance is, is really exciting for him. Um, obviously, it's just one year in pro ball, so you want to – let him get a few more at-bats before you really uh, figure out what he's going to be at the next level. But uh, definitely an exciting hitter with a power-speed combination that, that you always want to see. Uh, there's already been like a lot of uncertainty about the actual major league season, but um, have there been any rumblings on what the league might choose to do with minor league players, whether it's a developmental league or just like letting them sit out for the year? Yeah, I would imagine they would want to do something with them. I think J.J. Cooper would probably be a better source for, for an answer to this question than I would just because he's done a lot of the reporting on that level uh, and is more in tune with, with what teams want to do and what they're they're able to do. A lot of it's just going to depend on uh, the safety of everything. If you can get an environment where you can have players playing games or doing workouts uh, without putting uh, unnecessary risk on them and people around them, I think it would be very, I'd be very surprised if teams didn't want them to kind of get some sort of development going a full year without doing anything. It's really going to hurt a lot of players in terms of their progress um, moving forward in their pro careers. Uh, I think there are a lot of different options you might be able to explore um, that are untraditional in terms of different leagues, different, different, uh, different levels of play in the fall. Uh, there are a lot of different things you could do. In fact, we've written, not, not myself, again, this is kind of the minor league team at Baseball America, has written about a couple different opportunities that teams could have in the fall by putting some of their prospects together and just letting them kind of play games just for the sake of development. I think even outside of putting on games for fans at the minor league level, it's important for a lot of these guys to, to continue getting at bats and getting on the mound and developing as players. Um, because the entire minor leagues missing a year is going to have uh, some trickle effects at the major league level, obviously. So I would hope hope that that could be avoided. But again, 
this is pretty unprecedented in terms of how leagues and, and people are just able to, to do what they normally do. So um, the onto the major league part of it, uh, there, there's been some talk of like potentially having like expanded 40 man rosters. So I guess like potentially 50 guys um, and then having them play in like a September type scenario where you can have them like all play at some point. How do you think uh, like teams will go about like, especially like the Marlins where they have a lot of prospects, but maybe service time could be an issue. Like how, how do you think they'll go about that? Yeah. Again, I think that that's probably something that's a little bit out of my league. I've been kind of focusing on just draft stuff at this point. I haven't put a lot of thought into that, but I think we've seen just, if you look at what teams have done in the past in terms of service time, they're going to do whatever they can uh, to maximize the service time. So if there's a situation where you could play some of these prospects, like a, a JJ Blade or Jez Chisholm or some of these other guys in the system, we can touch on more of them that would maybe kind of fast track that and, and get their service time started. None of these teams are going to want to do that. So they'd probably avoid that at all costs, just from a financial and a, and a player control standpoint. Um, at the same time, it would be awesome to see some of these prospects uh, playing against major league competition. I think it's a, it's something you don't see um, a ton with, with a number of different players. You obviously have, individual prospects and certain teams coming up if those teams are competing but if there was a a situation where you could have a bunch of prospects from every team playing at major league competition or something close to that i think that would just be fun from a fan standpoint and you could really challenge some of these players and see uh how aggressively you could push them but i think in general teams are are inclined to to keep as much service time as they possibly can so we'll have to see what happens i guess yeah that would really be interesting (laughs) Um, just one last draft question. I just want to talk about a couple of the top guys real quick for you. And just something that I've been looking over the last few weeks. And how do you think there's a large gap between the hit tools of Austin Martin and Nick Gonzalez? Because I really see a, not simulators in their swing, but just simulators in their hit tool there. Yeah, no, I don't think so at all. I do think if I had to pick one, I'd say Austin Martin probably has the, the most pure hit tool in this class. Um, what's interesting, though, in our preseason uh, college preseason All-Americans that are voted on by scouting directors. We also have the scouting directors vote on best tools. Uh, and the industry on our poll actually voted Nick Gonzalez as the best pure hitter in the class. So I think if you talk to some people, they might say Gonzalez uh, has a superior hit tool. I would be willing to bet at this point that most in the industry probably prefer Martin. Uh, and I think that's probably just due to the, the SEC track record that he has. I mean, he's done it against better competition. Gonzalez obviously has the the very favorable favorable home park conditions. Uh, not to knock him too much because he did hit at a tremendously high level in the Cape Cod League last summer. Um, but I love Martin's plate discipline. Uh, his strikeout to walk rate is fantastic. I love his bat speed. I love his eye. Uh, and Gonzalez does a lot of these same things as well. But I think I, I personally would give a slight edge to Martin here. Um, but when we're talking about the best hit tools in the class, I think you do have to start with Martin and Gonzalez, uh, with Torkelson maybe right behind them with obviously a little bit more impact. Yeah. yeah. Um, this is probably uh, one of my last things and it's probably a little like far fetched, uh, cause it's so far into the future, but I mean, we're already seeing like big summer leagues, like the Cape Cod league being cut out, uh, th- like this summer. And uh, there's obviously the potential that there will be a prolonged absence of amateur sports due to colleges closing down long-term and going online, or maybe high schools doing the same. How do you think teams will maneuver the 2021 draft should that happen? Yeah, we've, we've started having some more conversations about this as those leagues have kind of continued getting shut down. And we kind of see 
there's a timeline isn't uh, it's not opening up as early as maybe the most optimistic outlooks uh, early on were expecting. I, I do think that the 2021 class has a chance to be even more impacted than the 2020 class, um, just because with these 2020 high schoolers, like I said earlier, a lot of these a lot of these guys were seen um, at pretty significant events for a pretty decent amount of time over the summer. And if you don't have a summer showcase season, these 2021 high school prospects are going to be almost impossible to evaluate, especially if that then goes into the next spring. Um, so basically the entire year where you're really spending um, bearing down on these guys from a scouting standpoint, you're not going to have that. Um, I don't know what leagues or, or teams and different kind of uh, event runners will do in that situation. Maybe there's a chance where we could have more fall events than we previously do but if it continues to be tough to have those events period these 2021 guys are going to be even more affected uh than the 2020 class i i do think the for for a majority of, of the players in the 2020 class especially at the top teams have a pretty good read on them they have a pretty good feel for for all these players and they feel good about the information but if this continues on uh throughout the summer i mean this is where kind of the bulk of the information gathering begins for the high school players there are some teams that do a pretty good job scouting underclassmen but at the same time just the quantity of looks and the number of cross-checking looks uh, and national evaluators you get on underclassmen does not really start happening that early in the process so it has a, a chance to really affect that 2021 class and hopefully that doesn't happen but it's definitely something that, that teams are thinking about right now the impact of this is just becoming more and more insane every day if we talk about it mm-hmm but to talk about the 2020 class one last time here and Miami's pick at number three, uh, our, our mock draft came out today and it alluded to a rumor that I've heard over the past two weeks that if Asselacy is not there at three, Miami could go under slot at, at a different college pitcher. Is that something that, that you've heard or is that that's out there that, that we should be possibly looking for? I haven't heard that rumor specifically, but I think in general, that's something that every team is kind of looking for. Um, we saw it last year's class. I think there were just two players uh, I don't have to check this out, but there are only a couple of players that, that got overslot money deep into the first round. Um, teams are constantly hunting for those underslot deals. In the top 10, if you can save a million dollars on a player uh, while getting a talent that you see is roughly equivalent to the other names that are left on the board, uh, teams see a lot of value in that. Um, I could see teams going either way this year. Um, there's only five rounds, so maybe that extra million is even even more valuable this year while at the same time you only have five rounds to get the players you want. So maybe you just take the top guy on your board and be done with it. Um, it has been a lot more difficult to get any hard information this year uh, just because you can't really scout the scouts at games uh, and teams are a little bit more kind of in the dark with what other teams are doing around them. Um, so it's, in terms of hard information on mock drafts, I think it's going to be more challenging this year. There are always rumors uh, at this point in the year, but kind of figuring out which one's, are legit is the uh, is the tough part, uh, and hopefully we'll get a little bit more clarity with what teams are thinking as we get closer. But to this point, I would say it's the it's the most unknown uh, in terms of mock drafts that that I've experienced while doing this, and I anticipate it continuing to be a challenge. So hopefully, I'll have a better answer for you as we get closer. But it's it's going to be a tough one. Absolutely, the smoke seems thicker than it's ever been right now. <laughs> no doubt. Well, Carlos, I think that's all we have for you today, man. I really appreciate you coming on with us. Yeah, no, thanks for having me, guys. Sorry I didn't have some better answers for some of your other questions. No, I mean, don't worry about it. I'm pretty deep into draft stuff. Yeah, no doubt. I appreciate you coming on and taking the time time with us today.
Absolutely. Thanks for having me, guys. It's always fun to talk draft. And uh, again, I appreciate it.